name is John Barnes. I'm the CEO of Pendleton Street Business Advisors. Um, this is our fifth uh, ERG uh, growth summit that we have participated in. Um, this, is, this is one of the things that's a can't miss event for our firm. Um, and we love inviting people to it. And it's great to see so many people here. It's great to see a lot of people that I don't know here. Um, that means that something's working and the word's getting out. Um, what we're about to do is we're about to, to do an, um, an interview. Um, our firm hosts the show that you may have seen or heard of called Footnotes. Um, you can go to any of our social channels, um, Pendleton Street Business Advisors on um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and you can find these episodes there as well as our website, um, just for your reference. Our firm, uh, we're basically financial, we provide uh, financial expertise for businesses that are going through major financial transitions. My guest today though for footnotes um, is uh, Dominic Martin, or Dom. Dom is the CEO of Optus Bank, O-P-T-U-S. Their website is optus.bank. Um, they're based here in Columbia, South Carolina, and they are a minority-owned financial institution. Um, and their, their mission statement is, is they, they exist to provide equal access to financial services and asset building opportunities for all. And so sit back and listen to this conversation that we have uh, about what it's like to be Dom, sort of the world that he's in, um, the economy that he finds himself often in, and how that's, that can be an impact, um, frankly, to all of us. So Dom, thank you for agreeing to do this. Um, your last name is not spelled like Martin in the United States. You're not from the United States. Correct. Why don't we start with um, who, who you are and how you arrived in the United States and sort of the pathway that took you here to Columbia to Optus. Thank you, John, and, and thank you for this opportunity. I'm really grateful to connect with, with you and this uh, great crowd, and I really look forward to continuing our conversations afterwards. Um, yeah, I recently received a, an email from a friend of mine from South Africa who read an article about me in the Wall Street Journal, and he said, you don't sound like a, uh, you don't sound like a black banker. Um, and I said, well, uh, my, my name is uh, from Europe. I grew up in Czechoslovakia, and I came to the United States when I was 16 years old as an exchange student. And um, so a lot of, a lot of folks uh, ask, and I know you will get to this question, you know, what's a, what's a white guy from Czechoslovakia running this African-American bank in Columbia, South Carolina? And I think um, after our conversation, it will make a lot more sense. Um, but but uh, really what brought me to America was um, uh, the American dream. Yeah, I always believed uh, in the American dream growing up in communist Czechoslovakia. Uh, and I felt I was always American, just born in the wrong country. And, and so um, from an early age, I, I thought about America as, as a place that everyone can succeed only to find out that that's really not the case. It's interesting you, you say this, and I, and I think because we're in a live audience, um, we're gonna take this conversation in some places that probably are gonna be uncomfortable for a lot of people in the room, um, but that discomfort is not designed or, or hopefully won't make you uncomfortable, but hopefully it will help you learn some things. Um, 
Dom and I have only spent about two hours in conversation prior to this. And in that two hours, I probably learned more than I've learned in almost all of 2020. And a lot of things have happened this year. So uh, we're gonna dive further into what you're talking about in terms of, in terms of opportunity. Um, we, hear, we heard a lot this year about disparities and about equality. And if you just go to even your bank's website, again, optus.bank, you see a mission statement that you don't see on a lot of, a lot of banks. Um, my, I started my career in banking and the, and the bank that I began my career in did not have, you know, did not talk about um, asset building opportunities for all. What does that mean to provide asset building opportunities for all? Uh, it's a great question. So I'll start, I'll start with a quick story. When I was a 16 year old kid, I was fortunate to come to America and my parents saved enough money, actually borrowed enough money for my plane ticket. And uh, I had to have spending money. So I got $500. So I came, came to America with $500 in a plane ticket. And it was a one-way ticket, too, because um, they couldn't afford to return. So um, I was on the school bus uh, in little Delta town in Arkansas, and all the, you know, all the white kids were in high school were driving cars, as I was, uh, and I was on the school bus with predominantly African-American kids going through the gravel roads. And when we got to the nice neighborhoods, that's where all the white kids lived. And as the greatest, most powerful country in the world, which I aspire to be part of and become active in, um, I couldn't understand why that was the case. And how come that, that it's so clear that disparity is so, so, so real? And I started looking around and, and I came here with no biases, with no, no real um, understanding or depth and, but, but it was always puzzling. And I will tell you, um, decades later, I'm still puzzled. Um, but, but now I feel a little bit equipped to do something about it. And so what I devoted my life to in our family, my wife, um, uh, we have a mission statement uh, in our family and that led me to this bank. And that mission statement really is focused on creating um, opportunities so that every human can maximize their potential. And so we, we're fortunate that we, we can align our lives with that with a mission statement. And, and so you ask, what does a bank have to do? Which is really part of your question. Um, well, a few years later, I was fortunate to get a full ride to, um, to a university. And I was sitting in my money and banking class. And uh, the professor started explaining how money works and how money is created. And I started thinking, you know, this is amazing. You can use a bank to just create opportunities, to create money. And a few years later, um, again, another fortunate um, turn in my life, I met a group of bankers that started this bank with a mission to actually close the gaps, to actually bank, intentionally bank places and people that are underserved. And it was a certified by U.S. Treasury as a community development financial institution. And uh, so my whole banking career, you know, I decided um, can we use banking for good? Can we use the, the function of money um, for purpose versus just the sole purpose of creating wealth for shareholders? And those two are not mutually exclusive, as you and I talked about. You know, there, there are institutions like ours uh, that are minority-owned or are community development banks. 
that have figured out how to actually generate margin from that mission. Um, so they're mission focused, they're mission driven. Uh, we do everything that any other bank does in many ways, but we're a little bit more intentional about closing the gaps. So I, I believe, and I, most of us believe that are in, 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 um, in this mission driven banking world, uh, which does exist, thankfully, that capitalism is a force for good and can be a force for good, but it has to be intentional, has to be channeled in, in the right places. And, and that's really what I bet my career on and my, my um, personal investment, that we can actually intentionally use the banking system to help close the gaps, the disparities that I'm talking about. And one other quick uh, point that I, I get these questions about the, the banking system, and especially from proud of accomplished entrepreneurs, many of you have access credit and banking services and probably are overbanked, probably have plenty of options, and some others are underbanked. Um, you know, why do we need a, a bank? Or why do we need a banking system that is intentionally trying to address these disparities? Because if you're a successful entrepreneur or a homeowner, you've already gotten a mortgage, you can go get credit. And um, I could go on for hours. In fact, recently I did a podcast with the American banker and the producer asked me, you know, why do we need the same question? Redlining is over, right? Redlining was 50 years ago. Um, and so I sent her this, this study of, um, uh, imagine two borrowers. One is John Smith and one has an immigrant or ethnic name. Same package, same credit score, same financial statements. And you blindly send it to a range of financial institutions all over the country. As an applicant, do you think you're going to get, get the same response rate if your name is John Smith, or if, if you have an ethnic immigrant um, name, or if you're a female. And the study after study, these studies have been done repeatedly. Most recent one was done last year by NCRC out of Washington. Disparities are massive in response rates. So if you think that there is truly equal access to credit, and again, I'm not trying to convince uh, anyone that, that uh, of, of the disparities, um, but if you're still questioning it, I um, challenge you, you know, take out your, your fancy device and, and read up on those studies. They're real, they exist, and that's why we exist. We exist to close those gaps. So just to follow that thread of talking about disparities, um, again, some people understand that they are there, some people don't understand that they're there. But, but talk to us a little bit about what really happens to a community at large that has a community within it that has to deal with those disparities. Does it affect anyone else, or does it is it just confined to to that socioeconomic or even racial community? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So let's make an assumption that none of us really care about the disparities, right? We just it, it is what it is. We live in our bubble. We're doing okay. We're fine. Um, recently, um, there were several studies actually uh, post George Floyd that have been released about the racial wealth cap. And some of the same questions that were asked, what does it matter to me? Does it impact my life? And so let's forget the moment that it is our, I believe it's our moral obligation as Americans and, and, and uh, leaders to care about everyone's well-being, just regardless of the economic impact. And I try to live my life according to that uh, mantra. 
But let's forget that for a minute. Um, the study after study showed that if we were to close the racial wealth gap, everyone would benefit. And the GDP, the most recent study I just read this morning by Citigroup, showed that the GDP every year would increase by 35 basis points, 0.35%, which translates about $5 trillion in GDP growth over the next five years. That's trillion with a T. Yeah. And so who benefits? Everyone in this room benefits from, from that spending power. So let's make it very local because I believe in an ecosystem. I believe that, um, that investing in closing those gaps and making sure that everyone can climb the ladder. Yeah, I think it's interesting you talk about sort of the growth in an economy. Um, part of where our firm lives is in thinking about those kind of things on behalf of our clients, um, also the clients that we, that we manage investments for. And you, you hear time and time again, we're in a low growth environment. Um, a lot of you are entrepreneurs, you're out raising capital. Um, those, those investors expect a return. One of the things that blew me away the first time that Dom and I met and we're talking about these things were there are areas in our country, in the United States, that if we just focused on growing those areas, we can get almost free economic growth just by focusing on places that have never, and when I say never, that's not a, a, a John Barnes hyperbole. It, it's, it's true, it's never been focused on. Um, that's my editorial, uh, we'll get back to this. Um, so talk to us more about the racial wealth gap. How, how, did, how did it happen? You know, what are some of the causes and what are some of the things that you guys are doing as a bank to begin to close those gaps locally? So, so I'm, I don't pretend to be a historian, um, but um, given what our bank does, um, we try to be educated and understand the history, how we got here. And um, there's several fantastic books, one of the favorite ones that um, I wish I had interest in the company because I'd be making money off of how many I've sold and given out, but it's, it's Black Wealth and Black Banks. And it was written by um, a professor from Atlanta uh, who really described the history of the, the wealth gap. And it really goes through 400 years of um, deliberate policy decisions made at the government level, but also individual level, solely for economic gain. It was not initially motivated by bigotry or racism or just pure bias. It was motivated by exploitation. Right? We wanted to exploit certain group of people, and I mean we, the collective global we, um, and through series of policy decisions. So let me give you an example. Um, the redlining I mentioned, you know, it, it was real, and, and that had generational impacts. So if you were a family, African-American family, living in a particular zip code, the banks would not intentionally loan there because of biases or misunderstanding or systemic reasons, right? Um, many of you know about the, the, the VA bill and how many of the veterans coming back from war got access to housing free housing credit, essentially. Well, if you happen to be a person of color, you didn't get that, right? So imagine how many folks in this room got their first start by taking out equity out of their house or inheriting a little money from their grandma or those cumulative effects of, of, of that small advantage over generations and generations create such an effect when someone shows up at our, at our bank uh, or any bank and typically um, 
People of color, black and brown people have lower credit scores, lower net worth, less liquidity. And it's not that there are worse business people. Uh, they're frequently working two or three jobs. In fact, they probably work a lot harder than I ever have. But they have all these systemic disadvantages that have accumulated over 400 plus years. And so there are so many policy decisions. I'll take uh, one of the most stark uh, examples is the 40 acres and a mule. Right, so that was a promise that Lincoln made right before he was assassinated. Well, suddenly after his death, that 40 acres and a mule didn't apply to African-Americans. So it started that far back and the cumulative effect of those policy decisions and a deliberate, of course, now it's become sy systemic almost in our life is serious and it's visible. And only if we are to look, all we have to do is look and understand it. I'll give you another example. I worked in the Mississippi Delta for almost 20 years. The schools there were, um, had shorter years, shorter days, shorter weeks, because they wanted the kids to work on plantations. The expulsion rates for African-American kids are higher than for white kids. Schools are typically understaffed, underfunded, historically in communities of color. So it starts today, it starts even pre-birth, but if you trace each of those policies, they were all based on economic advantages that certain people were trying to gain by exploiting cheap or free labor. And how do we create cheap or free labor in a pre-mechanized agriculture world where you need those hands? You sabotage schooling opportunity, you sabotage other economic opportunities to make sure you have that labor. Unfortunately, the same practices and policies started over 100 years ago are still present and carry us to today, so that's that's the those are the gaps, and uh, there are folks that are a lot more smarter and articulate than I am. They can explain it a lot better. But your second part of your question: so what are we doing about it? Um, we're intentionally trying to fill a gap that's left by traditional financial institutions. So if you're a traditional bank, and you and I talked about it, you're a former banker, um, and so you understand the credit box. Like you have your five C's of lending, you may have heard this, you know, your cash flow, credit, capital, collateral, character, and so on, okay? If you apply those five C's of lending, you say, well, regardless of your upbringing on your social network, you should get the same access to credit, okay? On paper. On paper. But studies after studies have shown that's not the case, right? If you're a person of color applying, um, you're going to have, statistically speaking, you're going to have a different response rate than you're applying as a white male. Right? It's just the, the studies are there to prove it. And, and so what we're doing is we're not doing anything to take extra credit risk. We're not ignoring the basic fundamentals of someone's ability and willingness to repay the loan. What we're doing is we apply what I call a 6C, and that's compassion, right? Say that again, so 6C is what? Compassion. And what that means is that if someone comes in and they just don't look that great on paper for whatever reason, maybe their credit score is 680 versus 700. Maybe there's something there, right? They don't fit the traditional banking box. What we do, we spend extra 20 hours or extra six months trying to make sure that we understand the situation and help them address it. So that is that 6C, but it makes all the difference if you are that person, if you're that entrepreneur with seasonal income. And this doesn't apply just to African-Americans. We, we do this for women-owned businesses. We do this for any person that comes in that's a unique situation. People ask, what are your products? What do you offer? I said, we don't offer products, we offer people. 
work with our people. We take, we take the interest, whether it's a million dollar loan or a hundred thousand dollar loan, we take the same level of interest. On the drive here, I mentioned to you, I was on the phone with a gentleman who just got off hosting an ESPN show. And he should be banked. He's got a multi-million dollar contract. He is unbanked because of advice and series of decisions and because of the way that his relationships. He doesn't have a banker and I told him, so now you have my cell phone number. So now you, I'm your banker, call me anytime. 24-7, we don't close, we don't work eight to five, nine to five. 24-7, call me, you need anything, we'll take care of you. There's no reason why someone of his stature and success should be unbanked and underbanked, but he just happens to fall in that space where systemic disparities didn't introduce him to certain people and certain decisions that we could, he could have made. So as a financial institution, we believe that sometimes just a little extra 5% or 1% of effort to really understand, so why is your credit score 680? Well, grandma got sick, I had to quit my job, go take care of her. So I had some medical debt, I had some, I had some, I couldn't, I was late on my car note, but I caught it up. Our goal is to always look beyond the traditional underwriting because we know the traditional underwriting is, is, is based on the world that has systemic disparity and systemic bias built into it. One of the things that, that I've learned about your bank, and especially when, since, since you've been in that leadership role as CEO, um, you've taken the bank from, I think it was around 47 million in assets to over 165 million in about three years. Talk to us a little bit about what that means to grow the bank's assets that quickly over that short amount of time and how just growing assets within a bank like Optus can help the community. So one, one thing that it means is growing pains, which means we, we piss off a lot of people. I hate to admit it. Um, I, get, I get calls about someone not returning the call or a customer service line being busy. Um, it's growing pains. And we disappoint a lot of people um, because that kind of growth is as is, is dramatic as you can imagine for any business. Now you could say that's a good problem to have, and it is a, it is a good problem to have. Uh, and so, so really the bet we made um, for our bank when I came here is that we can uh, offer state-of-the-art great banking services to everyone. But we're gonna do with this personal touch that I'm describing, that we're going to be accessible, we're going to be relational, we're going to go back to old school kind of banking, except regardless whether you have $4 in your account or $4 million account in your account, we have both. Um, I mean, we have. We have PayPal who put in $50 million in our bank, and that's not even counted in the 165 million you mentioned. So, so regardless of that, we're going to take care of them. And it took us a couple of years to get started for folks to figure out, okay, so he's not just saying this, it's actually happening. So once the word got out, um, it really started. And then the one thing that really put us over is the PPP program. Uh, we started getting calls from, from customers with huge, and relationships with large banks and they couldn't get a call back from anyone. Uh, we, we worked, everyone from our chairman Mitchell was there on Sunday processing loans to the frontline people uh, were processing loans. So we, we, for three months, we worked seven days a week. And with that came new relationships. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting, you know, um, not to get overly technical on banking, but as a banking grows their deposits, 
In other words, when you take your paycheck or your savings account and you open it at a bank, any bank, that's how they have money to lend. When, when someone like Dom goes out and, and builds deposits, and I don't know if you caught that, but PayPal, we've all heard of PayPal, has $50 million on deposit at, at his bank. That grows their lending base tremendously so that they can go into those communities and, and make those loans. These companies that have these kind of missions can't do it without the practical side of things. I, I, wanna, I wanna shift gears a little more and I want us to kind of dive into, um, you said something about having margin and mission. So talk to us a little bit about how you create margin, profit margin that is, and then how that helps to fund the mission in, in a practical sense. Yeah, that's, that's a struggle for most mission aligned organizations to balance the margin and mission. So um, I want to back up to uh, one point that you made, which will relate to the margin and mission piece, uh, is this entrepreneurial ecosystem, this local economy, and how we fit in, how we fit in or not fit in. Because um, I want to make sure we don't lose that point. Um, you know, we, we're making a bet, and I think everyone in this room could make a bet if, if we focus on your description of the underserved areas or the areas that are not served. If we make them viable as a customer base, we all win. So back to the, the and the, that brings me to the margin piece. I'll talk about that in a minute. But even if we couldn't care less about ensuring that every person has a chance to maximize their human potential, their God-given human potential, which I believe we should be doing. But forget that. If you just focus on pure economic self-interest, by making sure that the North Main area that has um, you know, some, this, some poverty, pockets of poverty, is prospering. If we, wanna, if we make sure that every entrepreneur has that ladder that they can climb, because some of them don't even have ladder or whatever analogy you wanna say, you know, bootstrapping, they don't have boots. <laughs> if we wanna make sure that every entrepreneur has access to that ladder or the boots or whatever you wanna say, we all win, because those are customers for for us, those are customers for my bank and for you and for others. Um, and, and so really that's where, so, so back to the margin piece, you know, the bet we're making is that if we do this right and if we build this entrepreneurial ecosystem where we bank everyone, even the most vulnerable customers that come to us that may not fit the box, over time, the margin comes in one, they have less options. So they're gonna come to us, they build a relationship with us. They're not as rate sensitive. They're not asking, are you gonna charge me three and a half or 5%? Um, and I'm not saying we take advantage of that, but we don't have to compete. We don't have to race to the bottom on, on the rates. So our margins are better. Uh, our risk is not any higher, really. Uh, it may look higher in some ways, but because of that 6C, the compassion, you can quickly figure out how to mitigate that risk. Well, yeah, and I think a lot of banks would say they're in a relationship business. But in, in fact, I think a lot of institutions are designed so that the relationship doesn't have to be there. They can go on the other seas. But I think what I heard you say is by, by emphasizing that compassionate peace, which, which is not trying to solve world hunger, by the way. It's just, like you said, applying the human element of trying to understand someone's situation as it is, not as it, quote, should be. You develop a relationship which is what everyone says that they're trying to do in business, especially our, our, our banking friends. 
um, but it's just it looks different uh, in the way you guys are doing it. Yeah, and the challenge with that, that those relationships for a $100,000 loan are more expensive to develop than those for a million dollar loan. How so? How does that work? So um, the, the saying goes in some banks, if you need to borrow $10,000, you're probably not qualified. If you need to borrow $10 million, you're probably qualified. And it's the sad truth in our experience, right? It's, it's just the way um, it works. It's not the way we design it. It's the way the system is working. So you're going to have to spend a lot more time with that person that's trying to start up their business and borrow $10,000 than if someone comes in that's imminently qualified with beautifully laid out financial statements and an accounting uh, prepared, maybe even audited financial statements, hands it and says, I need to borrow $10 million. That's a lot easier to make that loan frequently than it is, even though the risk may be greater on the $10 million as a size, but really you have someone who is clearly has climbed up the ladder some, right? And so what we're trying to do is make sure that, that the business model, the mission and margin, it does require what I call cross-subsidy. We do need and we do have the multi-million dollar relationships. We do have PayPal, Microsoft, Bank of America, Synovus. All these institutions have poured millions of dollars in deposits with us. One, because we're doing things they can do and they want to support us because they understand, not because it's the right thing to do, although they're doing it for that reason as well, they understand their ecosystem, their banking ecosystem is gonna fall apart if we don't serve the entire community. And they know that they're ill-equipped to do that because they're large institutions. And for them, a loan under a million dollars is never gonna be profitable. For us, it's a bread and butter. So, so they're really building, um, Bank of America recently bought 5% of our bank. And they didn't do it for economic reasons, although they hope to make some money, but they really did it because we're complimenting them in a way that they can't, that they're not equipped. That, and it's not that they're not compassionate, it's just their business model, they're shareholder owned, and their sole purpose is to generate shareholder wealth. But they're starting to see that shareholder wealth is the community wealth. If you don't build a community wealth, shareholders are, in the long term are going to suffer. And I think in given what the show is called as footnotes, I think that is the footnote, is that Community wealth is shared wealth. And I don't mean that from a socialist standpoint or a way that that gets sort of bastardized, for lack of a better word, that, that community wealth impacts all of us. And I think that's what we sort of forget when we hear these mission-driven organizations, these mission-driven given companies that are doing that, you know, we hear the story, it, it touches our heart, oh, that's nice, and, and we, sort of, we sort of move on. I've done it 10,000 times myself. But I was so struck by your story of not being from here, having a true outside perspective on things that have been this way for a decades, if not centuries, um, and what you decided to, to do about it. Um, I think another note that I, that I wanna make sure sort of goes out, especially in this group, is when you think about deposits and what these guys can do with those deposits. If you've got that savings account, um, if you've been successful in your capital raising and you've got sort of non-operating cash, you know, that's just there in, in, in an account, consider, a, consider moving that to an account in a bank like this. And I don't have a financial relationship with Optus Bank. They're not our client. Um, they don't pay me to say that. But when people are looking for ways to help, you don't just have to join a protest. You don't just have to wear a t-shirt. 
you don't just have to do these things that are sort of outlandish and are kind of like a field trip, if you will. You can do something that's ordinary and mundane. I, I, would, I would bet $100 that everybody in this room has a bank account, at least one of them. And if you own a business, you probably have multiple accounts. And so when you hear a story like this, this is why I thought this was such a great thing to bring out in a group like this that is here thinking about business, thinking about our local economy, and thinking about the greater good, hopefully. But that's a very practical way that you can do something that makes sense for your business, but that helps to grow in a community. Dom, um, thank you for your time. Thank you for, for what you're doing. Um, and and thank, you for, um, thank you for coming to the United States. Thank you, thank you, John. Uh, I, if I could just uh, share one point, I appreciate the plug. Um, it is the way we've been able to grow. Uh, people just decided they're going to make the world a better place. And it's sometimes it's as easy as parking your cash in a mission-driven bank, but it could be more than that. And so one thing I would like to leave everyone with, uh, you know, there's uh, people come up to me all the time and say, I don't have your resources. I don't have the vision, I don't have the ability. What can I do? And we had our neighbors uh, after the protests, and they, they, you know, they believe in capitalism just like I do. They want to live a good life. They want to, but they do believe that building this ecosystem, this community wealth, uh, is important. And they ask, "What can we do?" I said, "Well, next time you're getting your roof done, think about who you're hiring. Are you just going with your biases? Next time you're hiring an employee, are you thinking about, am I just hiring for my own little circle?" Or am I going to go a little uncomfortable, maybe hire someone who I haven't interacted with before, who is not, didn't, wasn't my frat boy or, uh, you know, or, or something like that. So I think we all can do something. And, and uh, I'll leave you with, with this point is, uh, you know, where you spend your money and how you spend the money is power. And if we want to build an entrepreneurial ecosystem that's healthy and strong and improves all of our wealth, not just collectively, but individually, drives my business, drives your business. Um, make sure you're thinking about who you're giving an opportunity when you're spending the dollar. Are you trying to close that gap? Are you trying to find someone who may not have an opportunity because they're not in your circle? And if we do that, I think um, 10, 20, 30 years from now, uh, we will all be better off. Our communities are gonna be healthier and our personal balance sheets are gonna be healthier too. I think we'd all love to see that. Um... Thank you, Dom, for your leadership. Thank you uh, for your time that, you, that you've given us uh, today. Thanks, guys, for um, listening.